This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is the 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, a stylish diary filled with radical historical dates from across the world. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary is a beautifully designed week-to-view planner where you can keep track of the year ahead. Alongside illustrations and book excerpts, it features significant radical dates from throughout history, including the English Civil War and Black Panther movement, through to the protests of 1968 and feminist emancipation, touching on the lives of revolutionaries such as Angela Davis, Rosa Luxemburg, and Martin Luther King Jr. The 2019 edition includes illustrations from Savage Messiah, Laura Oldfield Ford's brilliant psychogeographic graphic novel, as well as extracts from brand new Verso books, including Revolting Prostitutes, New Dark Age, and Paradise Rot. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, out now from none other than Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Ten years ago, a financial system of unprecedented complexity and power rapidly spiraled into crisis, dragging much of global politics and the economy down with it. As my guest today, historian Adam Tooze details in his book, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. Those crises metastasized and morphed as they coursed through American homes and European sovereign debt markets, exploding into the Tea Party and the German-led European politics of austerity, and ultimately creating today's reality of a neoliberal establishment in a profound crisis of legitimation in the face of an ascendant far right and also a renewed left, a left that is still, of course, mostly out of power but that is also the last and only solution to globalized barbarism. This is a fascinating, long, and highly complex story that Tews tells. And in this interview, we go over quite a lot of it. Okay, before we get rolling, it's a busy year at the dig. We have parsed the crisis of American empire, the history of neoliberalism, social reproduction theory, the white power right, and so much more at a level of detail that, casting all humility aside, I will boldly claim that you simply won't find anywhere else in podcast land. And we have so much more coming up. Melinda Cooper on the family politics of neoliberalism, Aziz Rana on the settler colonial context of American immigration law, Mohammed Mahmoud Uld Mohamedou on ISIS and the war on terror, Annabelle Hernandez on the war on drugs in Mexico, and Silvia Federici on Caliban and the Witch. This year, we also invested a load of money into hiring producers to record my guests in person so that it sounds like they're in the studio with me rather than coming in over a fuzzy Skype or landline. And, looking down the road, once Jacobin builds our new website, we will be transcribing every single episode of The Dig so that it's freely available to the public. And there's more. Beginning next year, I'm bringing on Alyssa Battistoni and Patrick Blanchfield and maybe others to occasionally take over the Dig's Patreon newsletter 
to write brilliant responses to my interviews. All of this is only possible because listeners like you support us at patreon.com slash the dig. And I'm very thankful that so many of you have. The more of you that contribute, the more we can continue to improve and expand on what we're doing. And so please, if you haven't already, contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. $5 a month gets you access to our great newsletter, which, as I just mentioned, is about to get a whole lot greater. $10 and we'll send you a copy of Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. Contribute $20 or more a month, and we will send you a load of left-wing books. So, please, take a moment and help us to finish this year on a solid note and to build the foundation for the Digs long run at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you very much, and here's Adam Tooze, an historian at Columbia University and the author of Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. Adam Tews, welcome to The Dig. Hi, uh, thank you for having me on. Your book begins by telling the story of a potential economic crisis that preoccupied policymakers before 2008, which was a crisis that never happened, a Chinese-American meltdown rooted in the huge amount of U.S. treasuries purchased by China and the underlying trade deficit. What was that fear, and why was it so visible and preventable while the crisis that did actually happen, sparked by a collapse in the housing bubble that reverberated throughout this deeply interconnected global finance system, was so invisible and so hard to manage once it exploded. Yeah, it's a really extraordinary, I think, kind of irony of history um, that that everyone was... I mean, it's not fair to say that people weren't predicting a crisis. They were just predicting the, the wrong crisis. Um but I think it's understandable. I mean, the rise of China is the big story of the early 21st century. Um, so you can say, you know, the, the leading macroeconomists of the US had their eyes on the main, on the main prize. Um, you could also say that many of them were exiles of the Clinton administration and needed a stick to beat the Bush administration with for the early 2000s. And so it made a neat package to be able to say that, you know, Bush's terribly misbegotten war in Iraq and the war on terror in general, which was costing hundreds of billions. The tax cuts the Republicans pushed through nevertheless led to huge spiraling deficits, which were being financed by guess who? By America's you know, potential geopolitical antagonist of the future, China. And hey, presto, you could point the finger at the Republicans and blame them for trashing America's geopolitical standing. So that was, that was very compelling. It was sort of part of the Bush took the eye off the ball Exactly. So, you know, they they, they were focused really on the wrong threat. Um, And you can hear echoes of that in the Trump administration's national security stance in the present day. Um, But then I think on top of that, there are kind of deeper issues which are more strictly to do with economics and political economy. Um, The the model of America's economic relationship with China was sort of reassuringly familiar. I mean, this looked like standard macroeconomic imbalances of the type that macroeconomists have been analyzing ever since the days of Keynes and Bretton Woods in the 40s and 50s. America had a current account, a trade deficit. It had a 
government public budget deficit to match. You added the two up, you end up with an inflow of foreign money. It was going into government debt. It was going into treasuries, which created then this dependence of the American state machinery on the Chinese. It was all a very, you know, it's a very neat and compelling package. And it was explicitly political. It was evidently a geopolitical threat. I mean, this was a, you know, a regime with, a, with an alien political type, if not to say hostile political regime type that was facing off with the United States. And so it was legible in terms, really, that were reminiscent of the Cold War. I mean, Larry Summers liked to talk about the balance of financial terror. Um, and that was a relationship that kind of demanded managing. And the irony is it, it was managed, I mean, by both sides. Uh, it was made the priority of global financial diplomacy by Hank Paulson when he was Treasury Secretary. He was hired largely, I think, because he was a China hand, not just because of his Goldman Sachs credentials, and his Goldman Sachs credentials were based on his you know, success in attracting China business for Goldman Sachs. And on the other hand, the Chinese also recognized the geopolitical significance of this relationship and actually behaved as extraordinarily cooperative creditors of the United States during the crisis. Whereas the Atlantic financial economy, which is where the crisis actually exploded from 2007 onwards, that was the zone that market economics, that the neoliberal paradigm, that the market revolution told you could basically be ignored. It was, it was explicitly depoliticized. It was the zone where private insurance by means of derivatives of various types was going to ensure financial stability. If not there, where? I mean, this is really the heartland of global finance stretch between Wall Street and the city of London. And the irony, of course, is it's precisely there that we have the meltdown and when the meltdown happens, it's also the place where we have no structures. You know, Kissinger likes to quit that he didn't know how to call in Europe. Um, when the financial crisis happened in 2007-8, it wasn't obvious that there were structures in place transatlantically to manage the meltdown, which was a private sector implosion. As you just said, the the crisis that did come was this took place in this financial sphere that had become profoundly depoliticized. And you cite this incredibly revealing quote from former Fed chairman Alan Greenspan, something he said in 2007, quote, it hardly makes any difference who will be the next president. The world is governed by market forces. This, of course, is pretty ironic of him to say because it's something he could only believe because it was an illusion he had worked himself so hard to create. His career was proof of precisely how political the construction of the global economic order had been. But is it fair to say that the financial crisis response showed precisely that politics did matter tremendously? Because when it came, there was no ready-made politics at hand, let alone a form of politics that could garner any sort of popular support to deal with it? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's the it's an extraordinary quote. I mean, sometimes as a historian, you just sort of pinch yourself and go, I can't quite believe he just said that. Uh, you know, it's in an obscure Swiss newspaper, admittedly, but but it's there, you know, and Greenspan, obviously, when he was chair was famous for his opacity. And all of a sudden, he's kind of off the hook. And I mean, fundamentally, we all know that Greenspan is a Republican and couldn't even bring himself to endorse Clinton in 2016. Um, so this is this is fudging. Um, you know, I don't think there's any doubt that he, in fact, did vote for John McCain. But and as you say, I mean, the blindness of it, the or let's just say the bad faith um, of his position is is, is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, this was a a politics of depoliticization, a politics of creating a space in which no in in which no hostile or unfriendly politics could intrude. I mean, that's the real function of 
the sort of uh, economic policy that he pursued. Um, and and at the same time then, as you say, discovering that when shit gets real, when when the proverbial hits the fan, you are going to have to act. And it absolutely does matter uh, who has power in Congress. I mean, the extraordinary thing in 2008 is you have a, a Republican administration, admittedly a lame duck Republican administration, but nevertheless, a Republican president in a general election year, and the Republicans in Congress refused to give the Bush administration the votes for the bailout, not of an investment bank, not the bailout of Bear Stearns or Lehman, but the bailout of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, they, in fact, rely on extraordinarily fragile congressional co- coalitions they put together with the Democratic majority that was elected in 2006. So, yeah, the, the entire Greenspanian edifice really collapses at that moment when it becomes clear that you actually need a reliable centrist party uh, to do the dirty work at that moment. And the Republicans are no longer that reliable centrist vehicle. Already back in 2008, this isn't a thing that's new with Trump. And this is the party that nominated Sarah Palin as a, you know McCain's running mate because they thought he needed juicing up a little bit at, at that particular moment. Um, so... That's uh, that's really the denouement. I mean, you could add, and you, you I think, uh, edited out the the concession that Greenspan made, which is that he conceded that party politics did matter when it came to national security. Mm-hmm. And the extraordinary thing about that is the way it separates, builds a firewall between the zone in which market forces rule the economy and the zone of national security in which politics does matter. In other words, you have to elect a reliable Republican to do national security policy. Um and the premise of that, of course, is that national security policy can be separated from the economy, which can only be true under two assumptions. Either they really are indifferent to each other, one doesn't matter, or the economy can only act in your interest, because otherwise you'd have to reckon with the geopolitical fallout from economic development as a major foreign policy, as a major security policy concern. And that, of course, is the world that we're in right now. I mean, it turns out that global economic growth, it actually generates contenders for geopolitical power, which America then has to deal with. The gods of economic growth are no longer squarely on America's side. Uh, And that, to me, is, as it were, the second great shock, really, to the Greenspanian paradigm. As absurd as the financial crisis made Alan Greenspan's comment seem, in many ways, it still seems as though the, the massively political response to the crisis in the U.S., still only served to to deepen the formal depoliticization of economic governance. You, you, you cite Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner writing about how managing the crisis to him felt like the experiences of the members of a bomb disposal unit in the movie The Hurt Locker. And sure, of course it was necessary to stabilize the system, but Geithner's statement reflects this notion that it was a matter of technocrats who needed to fix things, which in turn normalized the notion that finance would inevitably rule the economy and, and our lives. How did the profound failure of the market experts for those very same market experts affirm the indispensability and unquestioned authority of market experts? I mean, in part, I mean, it is absolutely a kind of dazzling effect of of technocracy's, uh, you know, <laughs> unshakable uh, uh, confidence in itself. I mean, it has precisely that perverse logic where the people who screwed up then assert that they're the only people who could possibly fix this. Um, and then go on to do so, and then are kind of bewildered and surprised by the consequence, which uh, in some sense is obviously the collapse of the political support that they actually need to sustain 
their mode of governance. Um, I mean, you might say uh, that part of the problem is that there wasn't really at that moment a credible alternative. I mean, part of the grip that the technocrats have on power is that they, by virtue of sitting at the core, at the, the center of the network, the flows of money and the flows of information, when things get real, as they do from the fall of 2007 onwards, are privy to the mechanisms which are actually undoing the financial system. And it's not clear that anyone really outside that central network does actually understand what's going on, what the priorities are. I mean, the congressional reports that followed in the aftermath, the vast majority of commentary on the financial crisis of 2007-8 is just simply beside the point. Um, and that, of course, strengthens the technocrats in their sense that they're the people who have to control this because everyone else is just, just really, you know, really just doesn't understand what's going on. And certainly for me, part of the purpose of writing this book was to write a version of the history of the crisis that the technocrats cannot deny gets to the heart of what they were doing. Um, I mean, that, and that requires a kind of proximity to them. I mean, this requires an engagement with them. It, engage, it requires an engagement with the way they think. Um, but the effect, I think, is to produce a narrative which, you know, the people closest to the story find hard to resist. Um, damning as it does in the end, I think, turn out to be. Um, and that was certainly the aim of this book, is to provide an account which which explains how it looked from the inside. And the key element of the story there is that what it looks like um, is a bank run. Everything else bleeds away into insignificance. I mean, the real estate drama really stops matter mattering beyond a certain point. Now, of course, that's a huge political blindness because tens of millions of people are going on suffering. Um, but if you're at the heart of the crisis management team, what you're focused on is bank liquidity, bank liquidity, bank liquidity, and then bank recapitalization. That's, those are the two variables which are really going to decide between life and death at this moment. And so I really wanted to quite deliberately stress, as it were, and emphasize and bring into play and explain for audiences which are not privy to this kind of technical discussion what it is that those kind of people now think was really the driver of the crisis. The TARP vote was really revealed how indispensable both finance and the managers of finance, the regulators of it, the putative regulators of it had become because TARP was really an outrageous bill, but it's also true that there wasn't really an alternative. It was outrageous, and the massive left and right opposition to it was really limited to no. It was limited to no, um, and you know, it only passed under false pretenses. <laughs> I mean, even the yes votes that they got were not for what they actually ended up doing, um, because what they ended up doing with TARP was you know, nationalizing. One should put that in inverted commas because one shouldn't imagine that the government, the agencies of the American state are really separate from Wall Street. They're not, they're not an outside agency which is now going to assert social control over, you know, the levers of uh, financial capitalism in the United States. But what they are going to do is put the, 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 the credibility of the American state um, at the service of a comprehensive recapitalization of America's banks. And that does mean for the interim uh, a substantial public ownership share in all of the key American banks. 
And that is not something, even in the darkest days of late September, that they thought they could get through Congress. So that's not how TARP is advertised. I mean, TARP is advertised as a program which is going to provide, you know, relief for troubled assets. In other words, they're going to buy bad securitized mortgages. And it's festooned with all sorts of giveaways for homeowners as well. It was promised that they were going to deliver relief for homeowners. That's what brought some of the Democratic votes on board. What they actually use it for in the first couple of weeks of October is to recapitalize America's banks. Um, And we know that earlier in the year, they had considered just a direct approach to Congress saying, look, the cheapest and easiest way of doing this, a fix, is recapitalization. And they just declared this dead on arrival politically, right? There were no Republicans. There'd be zero Republican votes for it. And uh, if there was zero cover from the Republicans, then no Democrat could vote for it either because you would just be let, you know, left hanging out to dry. So even when it passes uh, and then moves towards this essential step towards stabilization, um, it it passes under false pretenses. Where the Bush and Obama administration's political capital was spent really revealed the, the contours of the political economic power structure in the country and while Bush and Obama managed to save the banks, Obama never pushed for an economic stimulus of the size that his economic advisor, Christina Romer, had found would be necessary. And making matters worse, you write, the, the stimulus that did pass was structured so that much of it was invisible to the public, which meant that never in 2009, when Democrats had full control of government, did Obama implement a project with a material basis that would create a material basis for a mass constituency in the way that FDR did during the New Deal. My question is, could Obama have reached for more or were his policies undercut by his own proclivity to negotiate against himself and then compromise before even opening negotiations with Republicans? Or more depressingly still, were he, was he just constrained in terms of both stimulus and foreclosure relief by conservative power in Congress? I mean, I think all of those factors are in play. His proclivity for bipartisanship, um, the furiously bitter resistance of the Republicans to any measures of his administration. I mean, there's not a, I think maybe, is there, is there a single vote, I think, for the stimulus from, from the Republicans? <laughs> I think uh, it's zero. <laughs> it's zero. In t- only 2009, it's zero or like, you know, single digits, low single digits. At a moment when 800,000 Americans are losing their jobs every single month. Um, and this is a bill festooned with tax cuts, you know, made maximally uh, attractive to the Republicans in that in that effort. Um, I think you need to add one further element to this complex equation, and that is that the the focus of the Obama administration, where they were going to spend their political capital, was healthcare. Um, that is what they saw as the long term structural change that needed to be made uh, in American society. That would be the mechanism that would provide relief to the worst off Americans, the, the, or rather the, the working poor above all, right? The, the struggling lower, um, uh, lower income families in the United States that didn't qualify for, 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 for uh, Medicaid. Um, and that, I think, is, is another element in this equation. They were trying to keep some of their powder dry. Um, but inside the Obama administration, we know that it's not it's not simply the president-elect himself, but his entire team that is self-censoring. I mean, Larry Summers does this, you know, incredible number on Christy Romer, where he basically says, you know, if you ask for what you know is right, 
you, you'll look like you know an implausible alien and so yeah, it says it's like ask, extra that her figure is extra planetary extra, exactly you know exactly exactly so we're gonna we you know we'll ask for half what we think is right um which is a disastrous skewing of the of the argument right from the very start but that whole cluster of uh of elements i think is is in play um you know, and in fairness to the Obama administration, they then do attempt a second push fiscal stimulus wise, you know, as political power is, is ebbing away from them in 2010. Um, but yes, I think I think uh, that's a huge, um, a huge missed opportunity to do something even more dramatic. Um, and it's, it's, I think, emblematic of the difficulty that American politics has in the current moment of thinking of um government um as a constructive force in people's lives other than in the you know the 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 brutalized form of the security apparatus and there's you know that's the only branch of government which which the conservatives are you know happily to happy to expand um but but the the lack of vision really in the stimulus program is is emblematic of that looking back i wonder to what degree big finance always understood the political underpinnings of the system. In particular, reading your book, I wonder if the bank's repeatedly successful fights against capital requirements before the crisis revealed that in reality, they always expected a bailout should they need one. To to what degree was there a self-interested state of denial taking place? And to what extent had they simply priced in the moral hazard that the public who they knew they ruled over would have to bail them out when the time came. That's kind of like the left version of a right-wing moral hazard argument. Um, and I don't find it all that convincing, to be honest. I don't think, I, th- I mean, I would go, I mean, I'm not saying that, I'm not ruling it out. I haven't seen any direct evidence for that kind of logic, in, in, in part because it goes against the hubris of these people. I mean, <laughs> they don't expect to fail. That, I think, is where you have to start. And, you know, failing is bad for them. They, it's not like they say, oh, well, there'll be a tarp bailout package and then that'll be fine. I mean, they hated it. They were squabbling over it even as they were being forced to take it. You know, there's these lud- ludicrous people at the meeting on the 13th of October saying like, you know, is this going to be bad for my personal compensation? Um, you know, and that it, it, you've got to, I think you have to reckon with the, with, the, with the hubris of this elite group. That to me is a more compelling explanation than the idea that they deliberately calculated the possibility of them being, of them being rescued and that was part of their deal. That is classic moral hazard argument. And, and I... And I just think it's an unconvincing portrait um, of of the logic here. Um, you know, and they do, after all, they don't get there by a straight route. I mean, they let Lehman fail. Um, and it's Lehman failing um, and the sort of vertiginous cliff edge kind of experience that that provides, which provides the impetus for TARP. I mean, I'm, you know, when people ask, would it have been better to save Lehman? which would be the straightest route to the kind of scenario you're talking about. In other words, no one ever fails. I'm always tempted to say, well, okay, sure, that would have dampened the damage in the first instance, but then I don't think we ever get to a comprehensive recapitalization. And that's what really provides the oomph behind the really very successful recovery of the American banking system from 2009 onwards is is that step into, into a much more comprehensive rescue package so and if you calculate all of that in then this is quite a twisted path that we're implying you know i i 
just one to fail, which then tips the political system into dramatic action, which then makes us all good. I'm not finding that persuasive as a as a narrative. I want to rewind a little to before the crisis and unpack some of the mechanics at play. You, In your book, you argue that to understand the crisis, we have to place it in political and geopolitical context and also get into some pretty harrowingly detailed economics that mm-hmm. have long, you write, been hidden inside a black box. So in that black box, uh, something called wholesale funding markets reside. Explain what these markets are in general, what asset-backed commercial paper, or ABPC, and repo markets are in particular, and how it was that they formed the connective tissue of the crisis. Because I think a lot of people know the some of the outlines of the MBS story from the big short and things like that. But but yeah, not not this piece. Yeah, no, the, it's I, very important, I think, to shift to get the emphasis right. And this is what I meant earlier on by focusing on, as it were, the crisis as it unfolded in 2007-8 and what it was that the crisis managers were actually trying to manage. I mean, what everyone is familiar with from narratives like The Big Short is the story of how mortgages were securitized and how those mortgages went bad and how, you know, some really crazy lending practices were going on at the time. And so this is the familiar story of a bubble that then bursts. And we've had those before. Um, But what we really need to explain is how they turn into a systemic heart attack. I mean, if you think about it, the dot-com bubble bursting in 2000, 2001, the losses in that first phase of the dot-com bubble bursting were larger than in the real estate bust of 2007, 8. And there's no banking crisis in the early 2000s. So what that tells you is that we need another step in our explanation of the crisis. What we need to understand is how this turned into a bank run, how the losses that were incurred by the mortgage crisis turned into a threat to the entire system, how we go in medical terms from catching a really bad case of the flu, which is what happened to the US economy in the early 2000s, to this condition of being really in a state of cardiac arrest, which is what the situation was in 2008. And the crucial aspect of this is not, as it were, uh, the asset side of the bank's business, what they were lending, uh, what was owed to them, but who they owed money to. Um, Because banks don't lend their own money. They're not like regular investors. They're not like pension funds. They borrow money to lend. And so their business is always vulnerable to a bank run. In other words, the sudden withdrawal of funding. And when we think, when we say bank run, we generally think of depositors. You know, we think of classic scenes of depositors queuing outside banks, desperately trying to get their money out. And there were one or two of those uh, during the 2007-8 crisis, most spectacularly in Britain with Northern Rock in the fall of 2007. But that was an ex-post development. Those depositors were taking their money out because they knew the bank was going down. What was pulling the bank down was another sort of depositor, not regular retail people, but the market funding that modern banks rely on uh, to build their businesses. And that's where all this complicated stuff comes in, ABCP, asset-backed commercial paper, and repo. Because what those are are mechanisms for taking a mortgage-backed security and funding it on your balance sheet, which is what the banks were trying to do, hold this stuff. After the crisis, there was a lot of moral moral opprobrium. There were lawsuits about the fact that the banks were cynical enough 
to create securities out of mortgages they knew were bad and then sell them to investors. And now that's obviously reprehensible and they deserve to be pursued for doing it. But if they'd actually done that systematically with all of their bad assets, we would not have had the crisis of 2007-8. We would have had the dot-com scenario. We would have had a bad case of the flu. What's so dangerous about 2007-8 is that the banks are actually holding this, these bad assets on their balance sheets. And when the markets become aware of the fact that they've got this stuff on their balance sheets, they withdraw funding. And the way that happens is through a bank run. And what that means is, in 2007-8, is that you can't, as bankers would say, roll either your ABCP or your repo. So what are those? An ABCP is a asset-backed commercial paper. It is a debt backed by assets. The assets in question would be your securitized mortgages. So you take a bunch of securitized mortgages, maybe running for three to five years, something like that. And what you do is you make out of those and you match them up with a three-month loan, which you secure against the value of those de- of those assets, those claims that you have. They stay on the books, but they're on, on the bank's books, but they're collateral for the loan should should yeah. that be necessary? More often than not, actually, with ABCP, they were moved off the bank's books. This was one of the real wheezes of the pre-crisis period where regulators allowed them to move them off into so-called special purpose vehicles. But essentially, they are on the bank book, uh, the bank's books. And what the bank then does is to get a rolling stream of three-month funding for those mortgages. So you've got $100 billion, roughly speaking, somewhat like Citigroup had almost $100 billion, I think, on its books. And, it fu- and those things would roll, those, those, those mortgages would repay over a three- to five-year period, maybe. And it was funding them by getting new commercial paper funding every three months. So as those things come due in the crisis and people realize that the underlying assets are not good, it becomes impossible to renew that commercial paper funding. And then all of a sudden, you've got $100 billion worth of assets, which you have, which, you know, and you need to pay back your last lot of commercial paper to fund the $100 billion, uh, $100 billion worth. And you've got no one who's willing to sell you, no one who's willing to give you a three-month loan. Um, and so at that point, you have to sell those assets. And that creates a so-called fire sale in which the value of the assets collapses. Repo is something similar. It's a repurchase deal. Uh, those run on even shorter terms. You know, generally, you know, huge volumes of repo business are done over, literally overnight. Wow. So a bank like Lehman would fund a portfolio of $200, $250 billion worth of securities, which it was holding to get the interest on them, which it had paid for with money that it was borrowing literally overnight. And then, of course, it has to pay back the loan it took out the previous night, the next night. And for that, it needs a new repo deal. And a repo deal is a deal where you literally buy a mortgage-backed security and then immediately sell it to somebody else on the understanding that you will buy it back from them a day later, which is the equivalent, essentially, of them lending them, them lending you the money for a day against the collateral of the security. So that explains how Lehman could go from being a functioning investment bank in the summer of 2008 to being dead in the water within a week uh, in the second week of September because it simply lost access to these kind of repo markets. They're like depositors. It's like a bank run. The depositors are withdrawing their confidence, but it's going on on a huge scale. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars which are being suddenly no longer provided to the banks. So is it fair to say that the core vulnerability here is the bank's total dependence on all of this short-term funding? 
Yes. Yeah. And the, the single most important indicator of the shift to a more stable bank model, relatively more stable that we're in, is the rise of their deposit funding. Um, to the extent that they have deposit funding, because deposits are, are guaranteed by the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, um, they are relatively run-proof in a crisis. People don't panic as much, so that money tends to stay in the bank, and so the banks aren't exposed to the same kind of pressure. So that's the black box within which the crisis was made. And then there's another black box, which is the one within which much of the response to the crisis took shape. We all know about TARP, but you also tell the story of how the Federal Reserve provided dollar funding to banks, not only in the U.S., but also to banks worldwide. At least half, or maybe more than half, of the Fed's liquidity support, I believe you write, went to foreign banks. Explain these enormous measures, including these facilities I'd never heard of called swap lines, and why it was that they never received much public notice or debate. Was this response intentionally kept quiet in the wake of the massive backlash against TARP? Was it a way to continue to bail out banks, but to do so through the autonomous technocratic powers of the Fed rather than through legislation that would be subject to public scrutiny? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are two types of problem that a bank has when it gets into trouble. One is that it's made big losses on the money that it's lent. Um, and that that will eat up the capital that investors have put in to make the bank a going concern because you can't take the losses out of depositors' money. So you have to take the losses out of the money that people invest in the bank so as to earn the enormous returns that banks offers to their investors. The other type of problem a bank can have is the bank run problem where it is invested in long-term uh, loans, but it is borrowed money short-term to fund those loans. And the classic example of that is, is the current account depositor who has to give no notice and can simply take out thousands of dollars anytime they like. And then there are, of course, all of these market-based funding mechanisms, which are, if anything, even more scary from the point of view of the bank management. And so in 2007 and eight, the central banks began to realize that the banks were having both of those problems. And they're closely interrelated with each other because banks get liquidity problems, they get funding problems when it looks as though they have solvency problems. Depositors want to take their money out of banks that they think are going to fail by way of their losses. Um, and so what rescuing a banking system requires you to do two things. Um, it requires you in the end to find the banks which are actually insolvent, the ones which have been wiped out by their losses and replace their capital or shut them down. Uh, and this is the bit which is really controversial because in the short run, you're going to have to put government money into those banks. And that money is then at risk from losses. You become a shareholder like other shareholders and you can build various types of privilege in, but you are basically subject to the risk of losses, which is why TARP and all the other types of bailout really strictly understood are as controversial as they are because the taxpayer is on the hook. Of course, the defenders of the bailout will tell you ad nauseum uh, until their dying day that, of course, the taxpayer <laughs> makes a profit as well which the taxpayer de facto did because the taxpayer becomes a kind of investor of last resort, if you like, a venture capitalist who picks up very cheap money, very cheap assets at a moment of panic and sells them when they're worth more. But in the meantime, all of the banks are affected by the risk of a general panic, whether or not they're well run, whether or not they've made bad loans, whether or not their capital is ample or not. Every, no bank can survive if there is a general loss of confidence in which everyone is trying to get their money out of the bank. 
Um, and that's where liquidity and lender of last resort functions come in for central banks. And it's the classic hallowed function of modern central banks all the way back to Badgett's classic description. This is a liberal British economist of the Victorian period, the, an editor of The Economist, who described how the Bank of England in the 1850s stabilised the city of London by providing ample short-term funding to banks. Against collateral, so with minimal risk, what you do is you lend to any bank that needs money at a punitive interest rate so that it doesn't do this again, but putting the bank in a position to satisfy any of its depositors. Anyone who wants their money back out of the bank can have it. And you hope that if you can ensure that that's the case, then they'll stop panicking and they'll leave their money in the bank and then the whole thing will go on, you know, return to being a viable business. And so the Fed did this, as did the ECB, the Bank of England, all the central banks in the world were doing this on a huge scale, really, from the fall of 2007. And it's the untold story of the central bank stabilization effort in the financial crisis, less controversial because it didn't involve taking capital stakes. It's all collateralized. The Fed or the Bank of England is holding good collateral against the loan it's extending. But nevertheless, it's essential life-supporting support for the banks without which they would all have failed. And what is extraordinary about the Fed's action during the crisis is that because the global banking system does its business in dollars and because the European banks had played an extraordinarily active part, in, especially in the final, the dirtiest, grubbiest phase of the subprime mortgage expansion in the United States, they were all desperate for dollar funding. And they had swapped uh, money out of euros into dollars. They had borrowed money uh, in the United States uh, to fund their American businesses. What none of the European banks had was substantial American depositor bases for their very, very large uh, banking businesses uh, in the United States. And that's where the Fed stepped in during the crisis and provided uh, lender of last resort support to all of the European mega banks, Swiss, German, British, uh, Dutch that were operating um, in Wall Street at the time, and when they ran out of collateral, when even that wasn't enough, what they started, what the Fed started to do was to pump dollars into the European central banks so that they could provide support to those same European banks in Europe, uh, and they did that by way of these so-called liquidity swap lines. And it's a swap because what happens is that the euro, the Euro ECB credits the Fed with 10 billion euros. And in exchange, the Fed credits the ECB with $10 billion. They agree an exchange rate. They agree a, agree a small interest rate differential that gives a premium to the Fed because it's the ECB that needs the deal, not the Fed. And the ECB is put in the position to provide its European banks with the equivalent of 10 billion euros worth of dollars, which is- There's an interest rate, but it's pretty cheap money. It's pretty cheap. And at this point, you know, this, the European banks would pay- huge interest rates to get this funding. And what the Fed's worrying about, the Fed isn't doing this out of the goodness of its heart or because it's a sort of aspiring liberal, liberal hegemon that just likes turning the European central banks into <laughs> dollar ATMs or the 13th branch of the Fed, right? This is a spectacular extension of Fed power. Why are they doing it? They're doing it to prevent the European banks from engaging in a fire sale of their dollar assets. Because if the European banks can't fund their dollar assets, what else are they going to do? They, they've, got, they've got assets, after all. They just need to turn them into liquid dollars. And that will enable them to pay off at least some of the money that they borrow to buy those assets. Um, 
And the Fed wants them not to do that. <laughs> it wants them not to do that because that would, of course, put huge pressure on American asset markets and it would force American banks to recognize the losses that they'd incurred. And then we'd be sucked back into the downward spiral that was threatening to kill everyone. So as a way of, as it were, ensuring a standstill, what the Fed does is basically swamp the world with dollars. Another big part of the Fed's response, obviously, is is quantitative easing. And you write, I think, that the this more technocratic response to the crisis may have protected the response from populist anger, but it also seemed to make it a more bank-friendly one in that QE was a regressive form of stimulus because it inflated the wealth of asset holders and also by pumping mo- also pumped money into companies that allowed them to buy up their competitors, leading to this huge wave of mergers and consolidation. Is it fair to say that the response to the crisis facilitated the deepening of the very inequalities that had underpinned the system that caused the crisis in the first place? I think that is fair to say. I mean, in fairness to the central bankers, they will say two things. First of all, QE was our effort to sustain the general economic recovery, and in other words, the recovery of the labor market. And um, a huge surge in unemployment um, hits the least well-off Americans, uh, and the argument is made by the Bank of England as well, um, worst. And so if inequality is your principal concern and QE contributes to sustaining the recovery and that sustains people in jobs, then QE, that and that's the principal aim of QE, then sure, there are side effects, but that you've got to keep your eye on the prize. And furthermore, the the central bankers would tell you that this was always nothing more than a second best. I mean, they are quite clear about the fact that if if the the central issue here is unemployment and the collapse uh, of the economy, then a fiscal stimulus is the is the real response that's necessary. But they can't do that. And they well, the central bankers are legally debarred from doing fiscal stimulus, though they yeah. effectively have the means under their control. If you did a sort of people's QE, equip people with bank accounts and just print money into them. But under the legal regulations as they stand, they can't do that. And in both the United States and in Europe from 2010, you have the austerity backlash, which paralyzes fiscal policy, despite the anemic uh, economic recovery that's going on, you know, or rather not going on on both sides of the Atlantic. And so QE is is absolutely a policy with side effects. Um, but it's the best under the circumstances that the central bankers can improvise um, and that's that's I think their 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 defense. It it certainly has the effect of inflating asset markets, uh, and that clearly then does benefit people whose portfolios, insofar as they have portfolios, are skewed in that direction. I want to zoom out a bit and look at the crises' global dimensions. One of the central arguments of your book is that this was initially seen as a particularly American mm. and perhaps Anglo-American crisis, and that. In turn, it posed a mortal threat to American economic and geopolitical dominance. But that assessment was quite wrong on both counts. Explain why that was. Yes, I mean it's wrong on the, the it's wrong on the first count because um, the idea that American and uh, British capitalism can somehow be you know hived off and treated as their own particularly sordid, toxic. There's a British politician who refers to it as feral capitalism. Um, <laughs> 
you know, is is it's just a it's just a sort of narcissism on the part of of Europeans, uh, German banks, French banks, Dutch banks uh, were up to their necks in this in this business, uh, and if not in the United States, then in Eastern Europe. Um, financial capitalism is global; it, it operates in a globally competitive way. This is the you know the mantra, the cliche. The, of the last decades, but when it comes to a crisis, all of a sudden we sort of renationalize the discourse. It doesn't make any sense. The statistics show the precise opposite. You know, the hub of the of the crisis runs between London and Wall Street, and on that uh, on that highway between across the Atlantic, European money flows uh, abundantly into the U.S. And it then spills back into Europe itself, where Spain and Ireland had housing bubbles twice the size proportionally of the United States housing bubble. I mean, no one should imagine that America's housing bubble, which was extraordinary by American standards, was extraordinary by global standards. It wasn't. Obviously, Spain and Ireland are smaller than the US, but Spain is a Texas-sized piece of the global economy. So that's not a small thing that was going on there. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, bubble. And the idea that this would mark the end of American uh, financial hegemony, well, it might have, but of course, it depends on how the American authorities responded. And what's really striking about 2008 is that size matters. I mean, what it demonstrates is that if you're trying to manage a global financial crisis of really large banks, and the European and American banks, the JP Morgans, the Citigroups, and so on of this world, are all in the $1.5 to $2 trillion balance sheet kind of size then it really matters whether you're doing that from the basis of an Irish economy or a US economy. You know, Ireland has the, you know, an economy the size of, you know, like Manhattan or something. Imagine if Manhattan had had to bail out Wall Street. Um, it's unthinkable. Um, but UBS and Credit Suisse were each of them about twice the size of the Swiss economy. Um, and that's an extraordinarily dangerous asymmetry. And so in practice, the crisis, in fact, had the effect of reaffirming the dependence of global finance and the national crisis management of the Europeans are on the United States, far from this being a moment in which the dollar falls from grace. This is a moment in which the centrality of the dollar is massively reaffirmed. And it didn't stop there. I mean, it rumbled on, of course, into the, the second phase of the crisis, which is the Eurozone crisis, which the, the same sort of perverse narcissism, which describes the 2008 crisis as American, with the, Ameri the Europeans as sort of hapless bystanders, then makes the 2010-2012 Eurozone crisis into some sort of peculiarly European fiasco. And it no doubt did have peculiarly European features. But fundamentally, it is an aftershock of the damage that was done to the European banking system uh, in 2007-8. And the very incomplete measures the Europeans put in place in 2008-9 to deal with those with that damage. How was it that that banking, that crisis that was rooted in the banking system became a sovereign debt crisis and then politically was redescribed as a crisis of borrowers rather than one of lenders? Yeah, I mean, it's there are the various versions of this story. I mean, Mark Blythe is a, is a good mate of mine, has coined this um, uh, you know, great phrase that this is the this shift by which a private banking crisis was turned into a sovereign debt crisis is the great greatest bait and switch in modern history, and it's a very it's a very compelling image. Something completely crazy and perverse is happening here. <laughs> Where I differ with Mark is that the bait and switch image suggests you know a street hustler 
who is totally in control of this game and just leaves you as a bewildered bystander with essentially false consciousness about what's happened because you've been had. Whereas my view of what happened in Europe is that it's more a train wreck, basically, of conflicting programs for dealing with the crisis, out of which this emerged as the lowest common denominator. Um, it did indeed get transformed into uh, a public debt crisis, but not for the benefit, if you like, of the card sharp who is is hustling uh, the passers-by, um, but really with quite disastrous consequences for the European economy overall and including its banking sector. It might, in fact, for the management of the European banking system and its long-run health, have been better if it had been squarely recognised as a banking problem. So how did it happen? Um, how did that transformation happen? It, it's it's largely a coincidence, to be honest, because you know if you run the story by way of Spain or Ireland, um, it would have remained a banking crisis. No one's in any doubt that the crisis in Spain and Ireland is a bank-driven crisis. Both those countries started the crisis period in 2007-8 with huge real estate bubbles, vastly inflated banking systems, and what looked like completely bomb-proof public finance. In other words, they were private sector neoliberal success stories with healthy public finance. Of course, it turns out that it's easy to have healthy public finance when you have a runaway credit-driven private sector boom because tax revenue booms and your welfare spending is low. And so the one thing conditions the other. But once the banking system, once the real estate bubble imploded, whether or not there had been subsequently the entire Greece imbroglio, Spain and Ireland were heading for epic recessions because they were like Florida or you know California uh, without tech as a backstop, or to you know they were just heading for a, a huge crash. As it so happened, as it were, sneaking in before Ireland implodes under the weight of its banking crisis in the fall of 2010, the Greeks managed to break the tape first ahead of the Irish, and the Greeks break the tape in the spring of 2010. Not because they are a bank-driven problem. The Greek banks were expanded as well, and they had a real estate boom too, but they weren't really the critical piece of this. It was the fact that the Greeks had piled up huge debts in the 80s and 90s before they entered the Eurozone, had not done enough to reduce those in the good days of the Eurozone boom in the early 2000s. And then when things got rough after 2008, regardless of the fact their debt levels were already too high, they decided to launch a fiscal stimulus, their tax revenue plunged, tourism revenue imploded, and all of a sudden, Greece is growing its deficit by 12, 13% per annum on top of a pre-existing debt level, which then rockets to totally unsustainable levels. It's already clear that the Greek debt has to be restructured by the fall of 2009. And that is a public sector problem. It's just very small. I mean, we're talking about 200 to $300 billion worth of debt. This is a tiny fraction of the Eurozone economy. But at that point, then, the question of how to deal with that and the fact that certain key actors in the system decided to turn this into a battle royale over the constitution of the Eurozone creates the conditions for this to become a much more general problem. And the real risk and the risk that is still hanging over us today is that on top of the Greek serious sovereign debt problem, but small because it's Greece, and the very big banking problems that Spain and Ireland have, there is lurking in the background a very big sovereign debt problem, which is the Italian sovereign debt problem. And the real risk is that the banking crisis in Ireland and Spain and the genuine sovereign debt crisis in Greece, small though it is, 
leap across the fire break and cause a conflagration of the Italian sovereign debt issue, which is the real, you know, that's where the Eurozone really runs out of, runs out of answers. And the dynamic of the Eurozone crisis is really the oscillating between these three poles, the acute crisis in Greece, the banking crisis in Spain and Ireland, and then the lurking, you know, unexploded ammunition dump that is Italy. Before I ask you more about Europe, and I have a bunch of more questions about it, I wonder, did a similar shift happen in the US with the rise of the Tea Party, which even though it was in many ways sparked by the TARP bank bailout, took the form of a taxpayer creditor revolt against debtor homeowners, against a homeowner bailout that never really happened? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very important not to misread the Tea Party. The Tea Party is not a protest movement against bailing out banks. The Tea Party is a protest movement against the prospect that homeowners might be bailed out, right? I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's a small government protest unleashed by the terrifying prospect of a liberal democratic administration with a black president presiding over a crisis fighting, which is clearly going to expand American government, already has and is going to expand it even more. And it's that that really sets up the Tea Party crisis, right? Tea Party is not, in that sense, terribly original. It's classic, anti-welfarist, more or less overtly racist, um, American right-wing politics thrown into a tizzy by the situation of 2008, which from the point of view of functional stability requires state action, which is the red flag, which is the red flag to them. So they're willing to vote against state action, even if what it is doing is stabilizing the banking system and their friends in Wall Street and their their sponsors in big business. Uh, but then when the question turns to the idea of, you know, vote, uh, voting actual some support for struggling homeowners, that's what actually sets the Tea Party off. And then from then in, I think you're absolutely right. There's a there's a and it's not just the Tea Party, you know, what we've really got to ask is why it is that mainstream conservatives and some people, it has to be said, on the right wing, the Rubenites in the Obama administration were willing to make common cause with this panic about America's fiscal situation, which has all of them moving towards various types of non-discretionary, depoliticized sequester mechanisms as a way of shrinking America's deficit far more quickly than America has ever shrunk its deficit in a crisis of this kind of severity. I mean, Paul Krugman has a great graph showing how much more quickly the fiscal screws were tightened in the US as well from 2010 onwards. Um, and of course, that's to do with the Republican backlash and the fact that Republicans gain control of Congress. But they have allies in the, you know, Peterson um, uh, kind of mainstream uh, anti-deficit, anti-entitlements lobby, which has its friends in the Obama administration. And this has, and you write that this has deep, yeah, deep roots in the 1990s. What What is it about? Is it an actually empirically grounded concern about bond vigil antis? Or is it more of this kind of German style moral rectitude that drives this obsession with deficits so soon after the crisis when the last thing the economy needs is less spending? Well, I mean, I think there is the real historical pre- pre- uh, precedent of the bond vigilante moments of the 1980s and early 1990s. And uh, that is reheated, rewarmed by the experience of Greece, um, and which is experiencing, you know, bond market pressure, as are the other fragile borrowers in the Eurozone. 
Um, the big difference, of course, and the controlling variable is the position of the central bank. I mean, the bond vigilantes were a threat to the Clinton administration because they didn't know where they stood with Greenspan. The bond vigilantes are a threat to the weaker members of the eurozone because the ECB, with uh, Trichet in control, is deliberately using the um, the market as a mechanism of forcing decisions. I mean, I always quip, and it's kind of harsh, but it's not so much vigilantism as like more like a Latin American death squad, with you know the police authorities turning a blind eye but providing helpful lists of names and addresses of people that they might quite like taking out. Um, that's the, you know, bond vigilantism is originally an idea that there is no central authority and therefore the markets have to provide discipline. What we're seeing here is a much more dangerous cat and mouse game between conservative central bankers and markets trying to harry politicians into making tough fiscal decisions. And it has to be said, I think, that no one really had seen how powerful a central bank could be. I mean, the, you know, when we talk about unconventional monetary policy in this period, it truly is unconventional and unprecedented. I mean, on the face of it, it's obvious that a central bank, if it sets its mind to it and is willing to buy 30 or 40 percent of the sovereign bond market, can stop panics. But kind of no one had done that outside Japan. And so there was a kind of learning curve. We now know that bond vigilantes are a paper tiger if you have an active central bank. But you could, you know, with a little bit of charity, extend the benefit of the doubt. But I don't think there's any doubt that there are two other elements in play here. It's not so much moralism, though it's cloaked in moralism, as a determined effort to curtail the welfare state. This is what the rhetoric of entitlement cuts is about. And this third element, which is slightly more sympathetic, is a, you know, a reasoned concern for sustainability. I mean, in Germany, the, the language of the environmental uh, politics has totally morphed into the language of conservative fiscal politics. Um, uh, controlling public debt is a matter of intergenerational equity and sustainability in the eyes of people uh, of this of this disposition, um, and that's a kind of third element of this equation. And then there's a bunch of bad economics which came along: the Reinhardt and Rogoff results, the the threshold at ninety percent, which became a meme at that moment, and which they were not too shy about promoting in international policymaking circles, though they now, of course, try to distance themselves from it. Because it was a basic um, spreadsheet error. Yeah, but I mean, it's not. The, the, the idea is common to conservatives. They, they happen to have gotten their spreadsheet wrong. But, you know, the, the idea was really quite, was quite commonplace. Um, and, um, and so, and those kind of logics, you know, once you get up to 130% of GDP, 140%, the, the arithmetic is scary because at that level, when the debt is larger than GDP, if interest rates are large, then, you know, it's a kind of foot race between the growth of income and the cumulative size of the, of the debt simply driven by the costs of interest. And you have to allocate an ever increasing share of GDP to servicing this debt. It's, of course, I mean, it's important to add that we owe it to ourselves. I mean, this debt is, of course, owed by the government to citizens or investors, but that is itself a huge source of inequality because the vast majority of people don't have any substantial case, cake, share in this cake. So it becomes a redistributive situation in which taxpayers have to fund the repayment of this debt to people wealthy enough to own any of it. Um, so the, the, the questions are real. But whether or not they ought to have been as pressing as they were in 2010, well, obviously, I'm skeptical about that. In Europe, how was it that the the German model and the Bundesbank model in particular became the generalized template for all of Europe? 
why was and is Germany so powerful? Well, I mean, the, it's important, I think, to understand the nature of German power. Um, I think the simplest way to put it is it's simply a veto power. I mean, the Germans decided internally to regulate the relationship between their rich southern states, Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg, the, you know, the really nice southern parts of former West Germany, and heavily indebted northern and eastern German states by means of a debt break. Uh, a general agreement that there would be no further borrowing at the state level and tight control on general government borrowing. Um, and that was the way they handled their own internal federal fiscal problem, if you like. And Germany is a big country relative to the modest size of European states. The largest state, Nordrhein-Westfalen, is about twice the size of Greece and probably has a GDP three or four times that of Greece. Um, and so if you're regulating a heavy industrial, you know, a heavily indebted post-industrial region like Nordrhein-Westfalen and holding it to those kind of standards, it's just not obvious to Germans why those same rules ought not to apply to Greece because they apply within Germany. Um, and so that's the basic logic of the German position, which is that they understand the need uh, for steps towards closer integration. Uh, it is in the logic of the Eurozone. Um, but they cannot ask, you cannot ask German voters and German politicians are unwilling to ask German voters to support measures of further integration unless they can convince them and are convinced themselves that other people will abide by the same rules the Germans are abiding by. Um, and that's the kind of basic logic of the German position. And if you don't like that, well, then no deal. That's fine. And then you can see how things go. Um, <laughs> and the German, the German position is, you know, well, we'll be fine. And this is where the German, you know, position, I think, begins to be inconsistent and, you know, rather, rather over optimistic on their own side. But their position is that of a veto player who can afford to wait. And that puts you in an incredibly strong position um, in this kind of situation. De facto, of course, as the crisis got worse and worse and it became obvious that it posed an existential threat to the Eurozone and the Eurozone economy was sliding towards a second major recession, the Germans were in fact forced into quite major concessions. And, you know, if you ask German conservatives whether they have any power in the Eurozone, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll scream in your face. Of course we don't. Look what happened. Again and again and again, we've had to make concessions. That what do you think the Alternative for Deutschland is about? It wasn't about Syrian refugees in the first instance. It was about giving us some kind of alternative to Merkel's endless surrender to Draghi and these Italians. Um, you know, so that's the view from the German side is power, what power? I mean, all we can do is like drag our feet when we're being dragged into deals which are terrible for us um, and where other people aren't willing to abide by the kind of rules that we impose on ourselves. I mean, this I'm playing devil's advocate here, but that's the that's the position that the Wolfgang Schäuble or somebody will that insist upon. You know, he's a convinced European. He will totally ask Germans to go along with measures which are reasonable, judged by their own standards. And those standards, of course, in the German eyes, are simply what globalization demands. In terms of them imposing those rules on themselves first, you're referring, I think, to the the Hartz Four labor market liberalization and then the constitutional yeah. debt break, debt break. Yeah. Did, did did these reforms were they were they key in terms of politically binding german workers to their bosses and making germany's export model and all that it entailed a a shared goal would altogether did they along with this more long-running western german backlash against subsidies for the the east after reunification did they help create the german political constituency in favor of imposing austerity on the South and also 
make the potential red-red-green alliance uh, between the SPD, the Greens, and Delinka? Did they make that alliance, which might have offered a left alternative, impossible? Well, I think this is this is absolutely the right sort of questions to to pose. Really, um, the 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 condition of existence of Merkel's dominance in German politics uh, since two thousand and five um, is the fracturing of the German left. I mean, it's tempting to think of Germany as a latecomer to the crisis of the conventional party system in Europe that we're witnessing right now and seeing, you know, in full flow in France, in Britain, and so on, in Italy. Um, but the reverse is the case. I mean, the German left has splintered twice since the 80s, first with the emergence of the Greens, and then in reaction to the uh, brutal rearrangement of Germany's labor market administration and welfare system, which we know as Hartz IV, which was pushed through basically overnight in 2003-04, um, the, the, the SPD splintered again uh, with the creation of Die Linke, which was a party which recruited uh, you know, a big part of its membership from reformed versions of the East German Communist Party, the PDS, led by Gregor Gysi. And this created a three-way split on the German left, uh, which has been crucial to holding the Christian Democrats in power as the, you know, as the party really to which there is no alternative. In political terms, there is no alternative to Angela Merkel. And that is anchored, that division, in a bitter division within the German working population between those who are um, in the heart of German manufacturing export uh, competitiveness, still, as it were, can claim to have their interests represented by the SPD, um, a increasingly large marginalised low-wage sector that was deliberately expanded by the Hartz IV measures, and then what you might call the kind of social, cultural, liberal uh, group, uh, many self-employed people, uh, people with higher education who are above all represented by the Green Party. And that coalition, which is crucial to sustaining a kind of progressive alternative um, in Germany, is incredibly difficult to patch together um, because the divides between the Linker and the SPD and the Linker and the Greens, and in fact, even the divisions within Die Linke itself are so, are so profound. Um, and that is, you're absolutely right, uh, to, large, to a large extent, an effect of the, you know, in inverted commas, reform measures of the early 2000s. It, they they self-compound. And then when with the debt break, which the SPD and the CDU, when they had a huge two-thirds majority in the parliament pushed through, that then further constrains the capacity for progressive reformist investment-led uh, uh, public sector policies at the national and regional level. I mean, right now, it's, it's you know, we talk all the time about, uh, you know, the Greens re-entering government in Germany. And obviously, the extraordinarily pressing agenda of the next decades is some kind of response to the climate change challenge. And Germany has the huge question of coal. I mean, it's a country still heavily reliant on burning coal for power generation. To replace that will take investment. And the German debt break does not permit um, public sector investment. Uh, beyond the the zero deficit cap, which is crippling for progressive politics. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, which is now out in paperback. 
Recent years have seen an explosion of protest against police brutality and repression. Among activists, journalists, and politicians, the conversation about how to respond to and improve policing has focused on accountability, diversity, training, and community relations. Unfortunately, these reforms will not produce results, either alone or in combination. The core of the problem must be addressed, the nature of modern policing itself. This book attempts to spark public discussion by revealing the tainted origins of modern policing as a tool of social control. It shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, even public safety. Drawing on groundbreaking research from across the world and covering virtually every area in the increasingly broad range of police work, Alex Vitali demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. In contrast, there are places where the robust implementation of policing alternatives, such as legalization, restorative justice, and harm reduction, has led to a decrease in crime, spending, and injustice. The best solution to bad policing may be an end to policing as we know it. The End of Policing by Alex Vitali, out now in paperback from Verso Books. There's a prevailing sentiment, I think, that the disaster in Europe resulted from unfettered market rule. But to what degree were the Troika's austerity policies an instrumentalization of business and finance demands? And to what extent was it more fundamentally political and ideological? You argue that if the the Eurozone was simply acting on behalf of big business, that it, quote, failed spectacularly. So what did the Troika in general and the ECB, France, Merkel, Schäuble, and the Bundesbank in particular want? Exactly. I mean, I, I, I find the idea that the Eurozone policy was, you know, in any sort of clean and straightforward way, a reflection of the interests of European capital or markets, profoundly puzzling. Because throughout the crisis from 2010 to 2012, the markets are screaming for the Eurozone not to adopt you know, radical fiscal consolidation. Sure, down the line, they want that. Of course they do. But what they really want is activist intervention by the ECB. Uh, and they want the, Ameri- the Germans to green like this. Uh, we have a pretty good idea of what a policy truly beholden to business interests looks like. And it looks like the United States. And that isn't what we got in the Eurozone. I mean, if the Eurozone and the US are two versions of this, then the US clearly does correspond to some balancing of the general interests of American capital. That's just an implausible interpretation of what we have in Europe. So to they my mind- They could use a much better committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. Yeah. I mean, if, the, if, if, if not the 13th of October 2008 meeting in the halls of the US Treasury, then when? I mean, that's precisely what happened at that moment. Um and no such moment ever uh, occurs in, in the Eurozone. Um, uh, and what we see instead is this extraordinary kind of uh, train wreck of, convert, of, of, of divergent different priorities in which, uh, yes, ideology in the sense of competing visions of the long run interests of the Eurozone triumph over the immediate imperative of stabilizing the, the financial markets and ensuring that no one else goes broke. Um, and that demand is revivified and that investors have confidence and that people can make profit again. 
Um, and that may not be a long run strategy, but then capitalism doesn't operate on the horizons of the long run. I mean, this is the sort of, you know, fallacy of the sort of sanitized picket garden fence vision of capitalism that certain sorts of auto liberals adhere to, which is that, you know, if you make rules, it'll be good for growth. Well, maybe viewed from a, you know, God's eye view 30 years hence, but right now, you know, what the markets were demanding was intervention, intervention, intervention. You know, what did it take to stop the crisis? It's, it took a Goldman Sachs veteran, MIT trained, Americanized Italian central banker to tell a bunch of hedge fund managers in London, I'll do whatever it takes. That's what it took. Um, and that's the message which the European politicians and folks like conservatives like Trichet had refused to provide the markets with. Um, and, um, you know, sure, Draghi made this conditional on fiscal consolidation, but you know, if he'd said, I'll do whatever it takes in December 2011 ahead of the fiscal deal, that would have solved the problem too. The fact that he needed the fiscal deal, which the Germans hammered down, you know, down on the Eurozone over the winter of 11-12, um, was an imperative of politics. It was not an imperative of the markets. One of the key ironies of your book or the argument that uh, you're you're making is that Draghi finally embracing quantitative easing and stabilizing the European financial system also creates the the breathing room for Germany and company to impose austerity on to impose austerity on Greece yes without risking financial contagion from Grexit and so this is for me like another example in your book of how it's hard to disentangle the quote effective and ineffective responses to the crisis because this is financially effective, but from like a humane left, whatever perspective, uh, facilitates a political economic disaster. Yeah, but it allows conservatives to have their cake and eat it. I mean, the same is true in the United States, right? The sort of push me, pull you type quality here where fiscal policy tightens and fulfills one conservative agenda and the central bank loosens like crazy and through that mechanism boosts asset markets and maintains a minimum level of confidence amongst investors. That's kind of as close to a uh, ideal would be too strong a word, but that's a solution for the business class. Um, and that's what it took the Eurozone an astonishingly long time to realize, right? The, 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 the reality of actually living out a fully austerian view of Eurozone policy would have been catastrophic. Um, you know, it's only the periodic interventions by the ECB, the actions of the American Fed, the support of the IMF um, that allow them to pursue doggedly that policy for as long as they do. And then when they finally reach the end of the rope in the summer of 2012, Draghi has to say the magic words. But of course, Draghi then doesn't do anything. I mean, the tragedy of the Eurozone is that having said whatever it takes, he does nothing. It's the Fed that launches QE3, QE2 infinity, right? The truly unlimited expansion of American uh, uh, bond buying with the unemployment target set by the Fed, uh, the 6% unemployment threshold. Whereas it's really the looming threat of deflation finally in the fall of 2014 that tips Draghi into, into, into action. And then, yes, exactly as you say, with Draghi in the markets, which is what Schäuble never really understood. You know, once, you, once you've stabilized the markets, you can really double down on, on exerting all sorts of other types of pressure on a, a rogue left-wing government. Because you know there's, there's a firebreak. This isn't going to spread to anyone else. And did Schäuble not get that because it was for him 
and his fellow travelers imposing austerity on Greece and crushing Syriza was always more about containing political rather than financial contagion? I mean, I think um, they may not have got it. They may simply not understand the, the connection. They may genuinely have a kind of a radicalized moral hazard view by which if you provide the kind of relief that the ECB does with quantitative easing, you remove any pressure for governments to act. Um, and I think, you know, the, the to put that another way around, in 2010, 2011, they were playing real hardball. I mean, they were willing to take the whole system to the edge, uh, which I think just, just goes to show how little concern they really did have for the immediate prosperity of European business. This was not their top priority. I mean, Schäuble is not really a man who loves banks. He's a provincial German lawyer of a profoundly conservative bent. He's much more a kind of, you know, imagine a Midwestern Republican who doesn't really have that much time for Wall Street. Uh, you know, he's an evangelical Protestant. Um, he's an anti-communist and die in the wool from that period. He's an anti-Keynesian to the core, right? He's not, he's not going to notice if bankers in London are freaking out and saying the ECB has to act. You know, his response is, well, sure, you're saying that. Like, silly you, you shouldn't have made your bad investments. Now you're going to take some of this tough medicine. I think that's literally the kind of attitude you have to imagine them being in. Now, Schäuble's an anti-leftist. His view is all about stabilizing market economics in Germany over the long run. He's all about dialing back the welfare state. Angela Merkel, you know, has this famous mantra about the excesses of the European welfare state. Um, For deflationary competitiveness in the global economy. Exactly. They're all about that. But they are not in, you know, about the interests of business in the way that a Paulson or a Geithner uh, or a Mnuchin is about the prosperity of American business um, as Treasury Secretary. Did crushing the possibility of left populism in Greece and Portugal as well, did that help propel the rise of right wing populism in the sense that in the sense that it wasn't just the conditions of austerity that helped give rise to the right, but also the very political act of containing the left was made on the erroneous presumption that it would be the centrist order that was left standing at the end of the fight. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day that unleashed a different form of political contagion altogether. I mean, I think that's right. Um, that seems persuasive to me. Certainly the kind of nation-on-nation -nation competitive rhetorics which suffuse the, the debt politics of the Eurozone tended in that direction. I mean, the AFD is a resentful party of little German nationalists who you know, don't want to think large, capacious, generous thoughts about the systemic stability of the Eurozone. That's not their bag. Um, and Lagan in the Italy is a classic, you know, uh, um, anti-welfarist nationalist party, which has an element which is xenophobic towards African migrants, but used to have an element that was xenophobic towards, you know, Sicilians. Now they're in a now they're in a partnership with Five Star. Um, but yes, I think it's those kind of mediated relationships which have contributed to the rise of the nationalist threat uh, in Europe. In the in Britain, in the there's very good sociological work which shows how the tightening of the trade-offs um, through austerity politics and the creation of apparent zero-sum games between you know, existing UK residents and migrants in some of the more disadvantaged areas of the Midlands or the north of England 
um, help prepare the way for the for the Brexit vote. Because it seems um, like the degree of the crisis was so so extreme that there was going to have to be there was going to be a political shift to some alternative to the the status quo, and it was that same status quo that ensured that in much of Europe it would not be a left alternative. Yes, I think that's that's true. Whether or not there's really a hydraulic relationship whereby if you shut mm-hmm. down the left vote, then as it were, you get a right surge. I mean, surely it's more striking simply how until the very recent past, Spain was immune to a, you know, a nationalist upsurge, which Vox obviously the picture is beginning to change. But um, you know, given the youth unemployment rates in Spain, uh, which have been catastrophic now for the best part of a decade, it's quite remarkable, it seems to me, that the the response there was indeed an upheaval in the party system, but not a break to the right. And likewise in 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 Greece, you know, the the there is of course Golden Dawn, but the break is essentially to to the left, to to Sriza. Um, in Portugal as well, I wouldn't underestimate for sure the, the the coalition there is tightly constrained, but it is in its own right a radical transformation of the possibilities of Portuguese politics. No one thought that coalition could happen. Um, and in Italy as well, I would say you know Five Star is profoundly ambiguous, and if the you know of the two, yeah. <laughs> uh, Five Star is the genuine product of the crisis. La- the Lagos surge recently, I think, is overwhelmingly driven by anti-immigrant sentiment and um, you know the manipulation of a standoff with Brussels, which Brussels is only you know is sort of handing to Salvini. Um, but um, but I would think of Five Star. Uh, you know, Syriza, Podemos, um, even the even the citizens' movement in the centre there is not. You know, they're not they're not straightforwardly nationalist responses by any means. Obviously, in Syriza's politics, there is an element of patriotic uh, resistance, uh, but it's you know clearly coded uh, left. It's more in the framework of like kind of coded left anti-colonial nationalism. Yeah, precisely. And it draws on that very, very distinctive tradition of Greek politics. You just mentioned the the government in in Portugal, and you write about it in your book because the left coalition government there was only allowed to take power after it agreed in advance to the austerity arrangements. And your book details in so many cases how quickly and spectacularly the crisis revealed Europe's pretenses to democracy to be in so many cases a sham. Um, there's the Greek case, of course, which we got to talk a little more about, and not only with Syriza, but also the ouster of uh, the PESOC prime minister, Papandreou. Mm. And the ECB, you write, also instructed the, and I had not heard of this before, the Spanish and Italian governments to impose yeah. huge spending cuts and tax hikes. And in Spain's case, I believe, also the privatization of local public services and labor market flexibilization in exchange for a bond purchasing protection that they hadn't even applied for. And uh, you have this quote um, from unnamed German officials that I think really sums up what was going on. They said, quote, we do regime change better mm-hmm. than the Americans. Yeah. Yeah, I know that was a that was a that was a good find, uh, courtesy of my friends my friend Hans Kunlani. Um who was in Berlin, Berlin a lot at the time? Um, the yes, I agree. I mean, I, I, I'm I, there's no doubt. Obviously, an infringement of national sovereignty throughout the crisis in all these different ways. I'm and the central bankers are you know exerting an extraordinary and disproportionate amount of influence. There is also international uh, um, 
cross-national, if you like, intrusion into sovereignty, which is, is extraordinary, it, uh, fully in the logic of the Eurozone construction, but nevertheless remarkable um, in, its, in its frankness. I'm always a little bit hesitant to describe this point blank as a simple crisis of democracy, because I think there's a sort of slight sense of innocence in that. I mean, for mm -hmm. me, rather, it's just that the left lost um, and is being beaten. And it's being beaten by, a, at least in the phase I describe principally in the book, right, before the wheels really begin to come off, like a, by a fairly considered and concerted conservative political, coordinated political campaign from the right. So is this a crisis of democracy or simply what we get when the Conservatives win? Um, and I think I tend really more to the latter interpretation. I mean, the ECB is acting really in concert with Germany's government. And Germany's government is massively politically legitimated. Um, so, you know, to think of this as a crisis of democracy per se seems to me to miss the fact that democracy is perfectly capable of delivering this kind of politics. There seems to at least be a crisis in terms of how the relationship between politics and the economy, if not a crisis of democracy, because you write that before the crisis, European integration had proceeded smoothly with neither popular enthusiasm nor mm. protest. And so... When the crisis hits, it sort of reveals the fact that the EU and Eurozone lack the social base for a demos or any sort of people to to support it. Is Do you think it's fair to say that throughout the crisis, the Troika continued to be ignorant of the necessity of a popular constituency or of the very existence of a politics of economics and thus couldn't envision how their imposition of austerity would propel the rise of the far right, which they didn't want? That wasn't their preferred outcome. Yeah, I mean, I think they underestimated the far right for sure. But I think actually the Troika's policy is based on the assumption they can find a solid conservative majority for what they're doing in the states that matter. And that any other policy will probably not find a majority given the hostility of European conservatives, which can be as vociferous as that of American conservatives. Um, and um, to the Demos point, I mean, my take is that the effect of the crisis has in fact been to bring into being, I mean, obviously not a smooth, homogenous and totally encompassing European demos, but there have never been European parliamentary elections, which are as eagerly and anxiously anticipated as the ones that will happen next May. They really matter. Everyone in Europe is focused on them uh, and everyone is looking at everyone else's polls. I mean, this is what I think a European demos looks like. I mean, it's not particularly pretty. Uh, we may not like it very much. But it's a bit like saying, you know, that the triumph of, I don't know, the Muslim Brotherhood is a failure of democracy in Egypt. Uh, you know, it isn't. I mean, this is actually what the dirty work of a pan-European politics will look like. And there is absolutely no guaranteeing that it will yield, you know, solid, centrist, progressive politics with a great tolerance for the far left. I mean, on the contrary, it's quite likely to yield the opposite. I mean, the Americans didn't foist the Cold War on Europe. Um, it was our own politics. And that is, in a sense, what continues right down to the present day. So, you know, the, my sense is that the, the, the crisis has, in fact, dynamized European politics in all sorts of really rather surprising ways, many of them, of course, extraordinarily unappetizing. And that something like a European 
demos is is happening before our eyes if we were willing just to acknowledge it and say you know name it for what it is of course the turnout in the election will be disappointingly low but the salience for those people who do participate in it uh is dramatic and it certainly won't be you know that much lower than american midterms um so to me the crisis has really shifted the parameters would would the left be on more um firmer and more ideologically consistent ground to say it's not to call it not a failure of democracy but rather a failure of capitalism or a, 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 the upshot of capitalism oh it, that precisely i mean then now we're talking yeah evident that's what this is this is a this is a crisis of of democracy under capitalist conditions um it's it's clearly you know the largest and most dangerous crisis that capitalism has so far faced um it's really our Cuban Missile Crisis. We saw what looked like the end of the earth and pulled back from it. Um, but the capacity for that kind of crisis is evidently still there. And that does put huge stresses on politics. But, um, but I don't think of that as a crisis of democracy per se. I mean, you know, the crisis of democracy would be, I mean, you know, the displacement of Berlusconi by Mario Monti, that was. But what happened? You know, what happened is Five Star emerged and blew up the Italian party system. I have one uh, specific question about the the crushing of the left that we've been talking about, about Greece. Um, There's a lot of debate on the left over the role played by Yanis Varoufakis during his tenure as Greek finance minister under Syriza. The more sympathetic account is that he was sidelined by Prime Minister Tsipras and thus blocked from taking radical, decisive action that would have provided or could have provided Greece with the necessary leverage against the Troika. The the less friendly account is that he was the one who initially pushed Tsipras away from a more confrontational strategy that would have put the loaded gun of Grexit on the table, and that he was also the one who failed to impose capital controls when they were needed to stop huge flight of money out of Greece. And then there's perhaps the third and more disturbing reading. I don't know if these all three are mutually exclusive or not. They might be compatible, which is that it was already too late for Greece because the ECB's quantitative easing program, as we discussed earlier, created the conditions within which the Troika could force Greece to submit without fearing financial contagion. I know you've reviewed his book and written about this a bit. What, what's your take? I'm fundamentally of the, of, uh, you know, of your, your final scenario is the one that compels me. I mean, the, the Greek situation simply can't be viewed in, in, in isolation. Um, and uh, once you understand the force of QE in stabilizing the European bond markets, in totally neutralizing the possibility of contagion all the way down to the present day, we simply don't know from the spring of 2015 onwards what the European sovereign bond market looks like anymore. Um, over 30% of the bonds of the leading Eurozone countries have been bought by the ECB. We don't know, you know what the risk of a confrontation with Italy might be next year without that comfort blanket. And um, faced with that obstacle, the measures that Greece would have had to have taken to provoke uh, contagion and the sheer fact that their entire politics would have been essentially that of a kind of arson, right? Spreading the risks that they were being subject to across the firewall of the ECB to Portugal or to Spain um, gives you a measure of just how incredibly difficult their situation was. Um, and I mean, one can second guess the judgments one way or another. I personally don't think that a Grexit from the Eurozone uh, would have been anything other than disastrous for Greece. 
And the vast majority of Greek voters clearly agree, including the majority of Syriza voters. And when the left broke away over the summer of uh, 2015, they were humiliated in the election that followed um, with uh, Cyprus uh, being re-elected with a with a with a essentially identical majority. So, um, you know, I, in fact, in that sense, I'm I'm you know I'm unapologetically I think more conservative than than Yanis Varoufakis would be, who by the summer of 2015 is basically opting for, I think, at that point, sizing up the possibility of a of an exit and taking Schäuble's option. Um, but this, to me, is the sort of tragedy of Eurozone politics: is that it is a bad system in its current form, governed by conservative views. Um, but the costs of exiting it, exiting it, are simply exorbitant. I want to turn back to the U.S. response, the Obama administration's response, in in particular, and one of the most revealing windows that you write about in terms of their political predispositions was Obama's response when really soon after the bailout, banks start handing out huge bonuses. And tellingly for Obama, it's mostly a problem of optics. And at this meeting, he asks bankers to show some restraint in order to make his job of protecting the banks easier. He says, quote, help me help you. My administration is the only thing between you and the pitchforks. You note that in tough negotiations, a good cop is typically accompanied by a bad cop, but not here. No, I mean, this is this is the I agree. It's an extraordinarily telling moment. I mean, Obama's statements about the banking problem in the spring of 2009 are I mean, and they reveal how much of a centrist he is essentially on the issues of America's political economy. Um and uh, I think if you talk to Obamians uh, now, uh, in retrospect, they'll admit that the uh, their unwillingness to you know seize the possibility of a more punitive approach to actually have some pitchforks on their own side and to direct them at the fat asses of the bankers, you know that this was a fatal mistake. Um, on their part, uh, and it would have been cheap. It isn't something that would have required, you know, the healthcare-style mobilizations of funding um, or stimulus-style mobilizations of funding. Um, but their legalism, their conventionalism, made it very difficult for them to pursue a more aggressive uh, tactics at that point. Another revealing episode was the push for Dodd-Frank financial regulatory reform, which you write was guided in the administration by Rahm Emanuel on the one hand and Tim Geithner on the other. The goal of the former, of course, being a political win, an expletive Latin, I'm sure, political win, while the latter wanted reform by way of empowering regulators like him to regulate as they saw fit. Looking back, how sufficient were the regulations that resulted and did they do anything to actually check the size, power, and profits of the big banks? And either way, did the degree of deference it granted to regulators ultimately leave the regulations vulnerable to being gutted later on? Yeah, this is precisely the point, right? The gamble, the guy in the gamble is uh, to keep the politicians out of the game entirely. Give give Rahm Emanuel his win, get something through Congress, and make sure that that thing you pass from Congress minimizes Congress's ability to to, to constrain your actions. 
And it's disappointing from Geithner's point of view. They they come away as they've made clear in the Geithner, Paulson, and Bernanke issued this sort of you know joint op-ed to the New York Times this fall, restating their conviction that Dodd Frank in fact unduly constrains crisis fighting, and limits <laughs> the Fed's emergency action and the Treasury's uh, discretionary uh, capacities in a crisis. Um, and uh, their gamble is that rather than de-risking the system, rather than going for arms control. Uh, you will simply increase the managerial capacities of the regulators and the crisis fighters. Um, so it's a leveraging up rather than leveraging down kind of a strategy of risk management. And um, the fact that this is not solidly based on, as it were, a politicization, but is precisely based on a depoliticization with Elizabeth Warren's consumer you know, finance agency as the kind of sop to the left, um, that um, this does indeed expose them to the vagaries of, of politics. And what they don't reckon with is Trump. What you know, the worst thing they can imagine is some sort of centrist Mitt Romney-style Republican, and instead they get this, you know, vandal essentially, um, and that exposes the 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 fragility of this entire model of governance, which depends on the goodwill. Uh, uh, of the governors. It depends on them being people like us. Um, and when you get people who really And then aren't... even before Trump, even before Trump, it was, yeah. the, a lot of the regulations were eviscerated in the rulemaking stage. Well, that as well. Um, that's on the sort of Volcker rule kind of uh, business, exactly, when you have this extraordinary Kafkaesque kind of struggle between legal teams on each side trying to define, you know, the 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 rule to implement the legislation which then itself needs a you know massive multi-volume explanatory clause i mean it's an extraordinary kind of labyrinth really of high power thank you law and economics yeah i mean it's just sort of a nightmare um absolutely behind the scenes of course the balance of power shifts because because the banks are unpopular. I mean, this is the thing. What's the extraordinary kind of open goal that, frankly, both Trump and Obama seem determined to ignore is that that both their bases would, in fact, quite like to see very tough bank regulation. Both decide to ignore this, but the banks know it. And so in the in the open congressional fight over Dodd-Frank, they're really kind of, um, you know, withdrawn. Um, they use small banks uh, to, and you know, car dealerships and things like that to do their lobbying for them. Um but then, when it you know when the going gets tough behind the scenes, uh, of course, the, the the Wall Street law firms come out to play. For the last few questions, um, and then I'll let you go because I know this has been a marathon. I just want to uh, ask a few things about the about the geopolitics, which is a big part of your book that we can only cursorily touch on now. First, I want to I want to talk about the magnitude of China's response, which you write was bigger than anything ever done in the U.S. I think, at least outside of war. And it included massive spending and also huge monetary expansion. And you write it was the main force counteracting the global crisis. And it seems like an argument you're making here is that China's authoritarian government succeeded where Europe failed because it could move decisively and rapidly. And similarly, you write that Russia orchestrated one of the largest crisis responses, which was, quote, a top-down corporatist stimulus so my question is, while Europe's failed response obviously lacked a lot of democratic legitimacy, the, at least in technocratic terms, successful responses in Russia, China, and the U.S. all seemingly required a two-way relationship 
between government and finance and business with with no real public input or scrutiny. Is that right? And what does it reveal if so? I'm glad that you introduced the United States into the into the comparison because I think that is crucial. Um, with regard to the immediate bank crisis fighting, which China doesn't have to do, Russia does have to do, and Europe has to do, it's undoubtedly the case, I think, that having the kind of incredibly tight-knit network that American you know, oligarchy has produced since the 1990s is kind of helpful. Um, I mean, I'm not saying this isn't, this isn't to advocate this as an arrangement. It's just, you know... If one's trying to describe the 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 way in which this decision-making circuit finally, after the shock of Lehman, springs into action, one has, I think, to allow for its effectiveness. The only country that comes close to the U.S. in terms of the coherence of its policy response is France, you know, which is widely regarded as the most elitist, most networked of the European states, even more so than Great Britain. Um, so there is an there is an element to that kind of logic here. But I would say that, you know, if we're comparing fiscal programs, then credit where credit is due. The United States delivers a large, of course, we would like it to be larger, but it's a historic, you know, stands comparison with the New Deal fiscal spin this. It does it through Congress. It does it quickly. Um, it delivers. So this isn't a sort of, you know, a general um, uh, celebration of authoritarian uh, activism as opposed to democratic incompetence. Um, the 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 Obama administration incoming recognizes the need to do a stimulus and does one, and it you know it forces Congress to meet at weekends to make sure it gets done, uh, and that's exactly uh, the kind of response that's necessary. One can only wish it had been it had been much larger. What is striking about the Russian response is the frankness with which Putin is willing to, you know, beat the oligarchs up when necessary. I mean, clearly his is a regime that lives in a kind of ecology with. Russian billionaires, um, precisely how the, the power runs in that relationship is extremely difficult for an outsider to judge. But what is clear is that he's not at all afraid to bang heads together. And that's precisely the kind of, let's call it, you know, populism, if you like, the popular kind of measure that the Obama administration, as you as we were saying, you know, was loath to administer. Um you know, forcing a oligarch on camera to write paychecks is an effective mechanism. Why not? Um, and China, yes. I mean, no doubt. China is the most impressive, you know, it's the great challenge to any kind of Western conception of liberal or progressive politics in the current moment. Um, you know, it's now surely as serious in historic terms as the challenge which Stalinism posed in the 30s. Um you know, China delivered a epic stimulus through a combination of fiscal and uh, monetary expansion, which a regime like China can deliver because the banks, the big banks are under direct state governance. So it can act in the way that European and American policymakers could act in the 1950s, where you could set credit targets for banks. Um, and it can do this, you know, in a matter of days, weeks, Um and it is willing to ride out the consequences of that, which to an extent is still doing today. I mean, if QE is still with us, then the Chinese are still working through the consequences of that credit expansion. And it's as much the qualitative side of this as the quantitative side that's impressive. I mean, China rolls out some form of bargain basement health insurance to 800 million people. You know, it's the largest single hospital building program in human history. 
And this is while, you know, America is floundering over affordable care. I mean, you know, <laughs> America doesn't need China to make affordable care look miserable, but China really kind of puts it in perspective. Um, and I do think that poses, you know, really profound questions for for us, broadly speaking, questions of legitimacy in the West. is like, if that's what effective government can deliver, uh, of course, with huge, painful, horrible trade-offs, like uh, how do we, how do we, what do we, how do we respond to that kind of challenge? And we don't know the answer to that at this point. Your book dedicates a lot to to, to Russia and this just very little understood but critical relationship between economics, finance, and the geopolitical conflict there that has become so incredibly serious in recent years. So I just I feel like this is something we got to briefly touch on. You have the expansion of the EU, Eurozone, and NATO after the Soviet Union's collapse, which not only directly foments geopolitical tension with Russia, but also, I think, helps create contributing economic conditions that help stoke crises on all sides. And there's so many sides that you write about, just a few. You have massive Western European investment in Eastern Europe. You have the Baltic countries, which in order to continue their integration into Europe, submit to deep austerity. You have the IMF-imposed austerity in Hungary, resulting in the rise of Orban, who pivots towards Russia. And then, critically, it's Ukraine being hit by the economic crisis, if I have this right, that pushes the country to go to the EU and IMF for loans, which then ultimately drives the government towards Russia's more generous terms. And this is not the conventional origin story we hear about today's conflict with Russia. No, and I agree. I mean, and the difficulty of connecting this to our broader narrative is precisely why I wanted to emphasize it, because it seems to me that this goes back to that Greenspanian conceit, right? The Greenspanian conceit is that security policy is still a matter for politics and markets rule the world. And, you know, what we face is a world in which markets and security politics are deeply entangled. We are in the world that theorists of imperialism wanted to try and theorize. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, a simplistic imperialist analysis is going to do as much good in trying to think about Ukraine. Uh, but this is true, not just in Eastern Europe. I, I wanted when I was writing the book to have a, you know, an, an equivalently heavy strand on the Middle East. Um, and um, because it seems to me that that's another arena where, again, you know, we, we, we try out virtually every other explanatory mechanism, religion, you know, the histories of the Crusades, racism, (laughs) before we talk about the fact that the Middle East, like uh, Eastern Europe, was incorporated into global capital flows. The Assad Syria was a testing ground of neoliberal politics. Uh, The same was true of Egypt. Uh, The same was true of Libya, which was one of the great sites of global investment in raw materials uh, uh, before the Arab Spring. Anyway, that takes us even further afield. But uh, it's a crucial wager of the book that we can, in fact, tell a coherent story um, that incorporates this dimension and that power is fungible, right? To that extent, like I, I... I take Putin's challenge to the West seriously in that he calls liberalism's hypocritical bluff. You know, he simply says to us, look, you say that economics and hard power have nothing to do with each other. And I don't believe you. And I don't think you really (laughs) believe it either. And if, if I talk to the Baltics or Poland, none of them believe it either. It's not a coincidence that Euros, you know, that the EU and NATO expanded at the same time. Do I have to teach your own history? The EU and NATO were born as twins in the Cold War in Western Europe after 1947 
as a response to what you saw as the threat of the Soviet Union? Like, how elementary does this lesson have to be in your own history? Um, and so when you come to me and say, well, no, you know, just, you know, an extension of an association agreement to Kiev in 2013 is a geopolitically neutral instrument. It does happen to include clauses about the convergence of Ukraine and <laughs> EU security policy, but we'll overlook those because it's Ukraine's sovereign right to make this decision and so on and so forth. And you calmly expect me not to react. Who are you kidding? Right? Who are you kidding? And you will say, well, we believe in Ukraine's sovereign right. And I will simply say, well, I have sovereign interests too. And I am going to impose those and see how you respond. And then we'll say, we'll sanction you. And then I'll say, well, I have 500 billion euros in, in, in assets. And you commonly quip that Russia's economy is the size of Spain. And the only difference between me and Spain is I have nukes. Well, I'll point out another difference. I have half a trillion dollars in reserves. If Spain had had half a trillion dollars in reserves when the Eurozone crisis, do you think they would have been waiting for the Germans to bail them out? I don't think so. And how did I get those? legitimately by selling oil and gas on global markets. And is that some kind of concoction of my evil imperialism? No, that's the global growth story we're also supposed to believe in. Right? So, I mean, this is, I mean, this, I'm not a Putin for Steyer, except I am a Putin for Steyer because he's not that difficult to understand. Like, this is a position he's that makes sense in its own terms. The, the liberal presumption, you know, the, you know the, the, that sort of incredibly naive idea that economic growth will play only into our hands. We know it's not true in Saudi and the Middle East, and it's not true in lots of different places. And Russia happens to be one of the places where it's not true. Um, there's a, you know, I use that weather system image. There's, there's money surging east from the west into Eastern Europe, and there's money surging west into Russia from the gigantic global commodity boom unleashed by whose growth? Well, the growth of a still communist-governed regime in China. <laughs> that is a recipe for geopolitical complexity. And if you insist on the neoliberal innocence of saying, well, no, markets will take care of this. We don't have to worry about politics, let alone geopolitics, then you are heading into rough water. Your book begins and ends with China. And I think you suggest that the prevailing neoliberal innocence will not be up to the job of confronting what might be an incredibly real and more dangerous threat than the one that did not materialize a decade ago, which is not related primarily to the trade imbalance or treasury holdings, but rather China's deep integration into the U.S. and European financial system. Are, are you identifying what you think are the contours of the next big crisis? And if so, how should we on the left in the U.S. and elsewhere be thinking about confronting that crisis since all of the tools that to have some extent worked in the 2008 crisis were not only profoundly undemocratic, but also failed in that they left an immiserating global economic order firmly in place and also, of course, help foment the rise of the far right. I mean, this is, a, this is an, an expansive set of questions for another book, I fear. Um, the way I, I finished Crashed is to um, highlight the inversion of the story uh, between the moment of 2007-8 where I start, where the fear is about a Chinese sell-off of dollar assets and the humiliation of the dollar at the hands of, a, of the Chinese regime, 
the inversion between that scenario of 2007-8 and the reality that we were confronted with in 2015-2016. Now, there's a lot going on in 2015-2016, the Greek crisis, Ukraine, the Syrian refugee crisis, the American election, the West wasn't really paying attention. But in China in 2015-2016, it really looks as though the goal, it looked as though the good times were about to come to a crashing halt. There was a real anxiety uh, in Beijing and amongst those people who were watching in international markets that the Chinese growth miracle that has really been the sustaining force of global growth since, you know, really for the last 20 years now might suddenly be coming to a shattering halt. And that had as much to do with uh, domestic conditions as it did with international conditions. First and foremost, one should say this, the Chinese growth story is a domestic growth story and that is driven by its own logic. But what was really disconcerting about China in 1516 is that we saw not China sucking its money out of the United States, but the reverse, capital flight out of China. And how could this be, you might ask? Well, the, 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 the logic, and this was a scrambling effort to kind of figure out what was going on, was that Chinese private sector had accumulated debt in dollars. Everyone, of course, knows that the Chinese public sector has accumulated huge claims on the United States, reserves of dollars. But Chinese businesses had recognized in the cheap dollar policy and the low interest rates of the Fed an incredible business opportunity, which is borrowing a luggedly stagnant economy like the United States at low interest rates and invest that money at incredibly high interest rates at much greater rates of return in China. And they'd done this to the tune of at least a trillion dollars. And when the Chinese currency starts shifting in the wrong direction, the Fed starts raising interest rates, the commodity markets go in the wrong direction, all of a sudden those people panic because they've basically engaged in a bad deal. All of a sudden these debts are going to cost them more. And this is what was this is the money that was fleeing out of China in 2015, 2016. And the response of the Chinese authorities is first of all to panic and to fail to control it, then to regain their regain their confidence to allow the money to drain out and then to impose exchange controls and launch another round of stimulus in other words the chinese doubled down not on their opening to the global economy but on their imposition of domestic controls and remarkably the american federal reserve responded with a cooperative policy but at that point what you see is the depth of the interconnection at this moment no longer in the old mode of the early 2000s, which was government to government, Larry Summers's nuclear standoff, financial, you know, balance of financial terror, but China beginning to look far more like a fully integrated bit of the global economy. The question, of course, being what are the politics of cooperation across the Pacific between the United States and China? Um, and that, I think, of course, is the open question all the way down to the day before yesterday and the, and, uh, and the summit negotiations and this extraordinary situation that we're in right now where the fortunes of global trade are seen to hinge on the relationship between you know this clearly authoritarian Chinese president who's trying to subvert the rules of his own party uh, which require a kind of team vision of leadership and Donald Trump on the American side um, so that's that is indeed the kind of impasse that we're driven towards and just the the parting shot is how should we on the the left think about dealing with all of this given that the, the the tools that have been used so far may have may have functioned in a narrowly technocratic sense but have obviously been a disaster economically for ordinary people and 
politically led to things like the rise of the Tea Party and Donald Trump being in the White House? Yeah, I mean, I think especially in dealing with China, there's a real temptation for the American left to pick up some of the instruments uh, and some of the language uh, that are familiar from the other side, if you like. Um, And I have to say that I find this profoundly troubling. It isn't that I, I have any obvious alternative answer. After all, we're dealing with a Chinese regime which is profoundly and unapologetically repressive, which is clearly engaged right now in an increasingly acute form in massive human rights abuse. Um, so even from a purely liberal agenda, you'd have to say that China is a you know a difficult partner to imagine. But I I, I find the 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 possibility of a convergence uh, around a politics of protectionism directed towards China extremely unappetizing. I mean, it seems to me to play into all of the wrong. Uh, channels in American politics, but I, this isn't. I'm not saying this because I feel I have any obvious answer uh, to the question that you're posing, but it, but it does seem to me to be the place where a conversation about a left policy agenda really needs to start and to get get serious quite quickly, because certainly the Democrats are not any real alternative. Um, after all, Hillary Clinton had was the state secretary of state who pioneered the pivot. I think under you know the counterfactual of a Clinton presidency, it's easy to imagine uh, an escalation of a similar type. Perhaps it might have been more more multilateral, but it's unclear. I think whether she would have pushed uh, TPP either. You know the regional trade pact with America's allies in that region. Um, it needs to be a conversation, ideally, I think, with a wide uh, range of actors uh, across the region. We need to be uh, looking for partners in Australia. South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, uh, in India, in all of the obvious regional partners uh, where there is uh, freedom of speech and something like uh, democratic conditions that would enable that conversation to take place. Because I do think uh, uh, the left uh, needs to work this out. And it's not obvious to me right now what the, what the position should be. Well, Adam Tews, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Adam Tews is an historian at Columbia University and the author of Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that in a financial crisis, the cry resounds over the markets of the world. Only money is a commodity. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. Often twice, sometimes once. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Please follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And find us wherever you get podcasts. And subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Mm -hmm.